let's, let's, we started out with this last week. We'll do it again, this little practice. If you have a piece of paper, this is sort of, again, like that fourth grade, don't let anybody see your answer kind of thing, you know. This is just, just, just between you and God and me later on when I sn sneak a peek. Um, uh, write down either on paper or in your mind if you're visual like that and uh, you can see things um, in your head. Uh, write down an answer to this question. Um, how do you know that you are accepted by God? And that seems like a pretty, you know, if, any, if, if you guys have been a Christian for any amount of time, you know, like, this is something that seems to be a pretty elementary kind of question. But let's think about it. Just think about it. How do you know that you're accepted by God? How do you know that you are uh, that you are right with God. If the throne of God were to crash to earth right now and you were to be standing before him, how do you know that things are cool? You got your answer? Nobody share. Don't share your answer. It's just, be, just I, want, I want you to get an answer in your head, though. All right? In Mark, um, we're, we're in chapter 2 and we're going into chapter 3 today. And what we see is story after story after story after story of um, Jesus here, here on this earth and, and dealing essentially with that question of what does it mean to be right with God? What does it mean to, 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 to be cool with God? Specifically in the way that he interacts with uh, the religious leaders of, of their day. Um, we see these stories and we're going to kind of skim through each one of them this morning. We see these stories um, that show uh, when Jesus came here to earth, when he walked this planet, he brought with him a big problem. Uh, a problem not for him, but a problem for religion. He brought with him a big problem for the religious leaders of, of their day. Um, if you want a deeper look into this idea of religion, uh, we did a whole series called Religion is Dead um, some time ago, and it's online. You can find it, the whole series. But we've essentially defined uh, religion. You know, religion can kind of be defined in different ways. Um, we've tried to define it here at the church uh, in, in the way that we most commonly think of religion, which is um, uh, any practice, uh, any kind of performance of an action, any change in behavior which results in acceptance by God. And so for the sake of the conversation, we're defining religion as something that you do, a performance or maybe a change in behavior, something that you do, uh, maybe obedience. And, and as a result, you are then accepted by God. And I think there's, there's all sorts of, this varies like in, in intensity. I think some people might, as far as uh, what it means to go from uh, earth to heaven or whatever, they'll believe in Jesus for that. But then beyond that, what it means to be, to continue in your relationship with God, to, for God to be happy with you as a Christian, then it's kind of up to you. It's up to your performance. It's up to uh, your morals. It's up to what you do or what you don't do. Uh, Tim Keller puts it uh, simply like, like this. He says, uh, re religion says that you obey, therefore you're accepted. You do the right things. You, you do what God wants you to do. Therefore, God's happy with you. God, you're, you're accepted by God. 
And the question at the core of, of religion um, and the question at the core of sort of where we're going today is what does it mean? How, how do we become accepted by God? This really fundamental elementary sort of question within our faith, what does it mean to be right with God? What does it mean to be able to stand before the throne of God and, 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 and have confidence to approach the, th- the throne boldly? Um, some of you may, uh, may answer that question, what does it mean to be right with God? You may answer it along the lines of um, living, living better, just I've got to live a better life. Uh, God's not really happy with the way that I've been living my life. And so I need to change some things. I need to live a little better. I need to stop doing this. I need to stop uh, smoking or getting drunk. Or I need to stop selling drugs. Or I need to stop whatever, having sex. And then in that way I can uh, sort of kick it with God. You know, we can be cool. Um, Or uh, others might say, no, that's like old traditionalism, legalism, um, I'm free to do all of these things, but what it means for me to be right with God is, and, and, and what I think you need to do in order to be right with God is to live in a commune, to sell everything, to live in poverty, to give everything away. Um, and, and in that way, uh, you can be right with God. You can be, God's happier with you uh, if you are living a poor lifestyle. Uh, on the flip side of that, there are those who say, no, God is uh, to be uh, blessing us and you know that, that you are living a right life with God when you are being blessed in all kinds of ways and you have good health and you have a lot of stuff. Um, how, what, is, how, what does it mean for God to be happy with you? What does it mean to be, to be right with him, for, for things to be cool between, between you and him? One popular Christian website, I was just kind of exploring this because I, I wanted to get an idea of uh, what is the sort of the vibe out there within the Christian world? I'm not talking about like sort of the non-Christian world, but within Christianity, what is what are what's what are the thoughts? What are, what are, what is our uh, our thought process when it comes to this question? And I found on one popular Christian website, it was actually saying that the gospel is not about guilt. Jesus is not about guilt. It's not about being good. It's not about what you do. And then they went on to say this, and I want to read this to you, see if you catch it. He says, what makes someone a saint is not their goodness, but the quality of their love for others. Those who live more and more for others, who like Jesus, extend themselves to respect and value every other person are God's saints. Now, I read that and I was like, wait a second. That's still goodness. They're saying it's not about being good. It's not about, it's about how you love others. If, if you extend, here's, here's the way Jesus loved what does it mean to be a saint, quote unquote? What does it mean to be right? What does it mean to be to be uh, in fa- have God's favor? Well, it's to love like Jesus is what they're saying. And if you ask a lot of people, like, and I hear a lot of people's stories, how how do they know that they're right with God? What does it mean? You know, what's their testimony, quote unquote? What, what how do they become a Christian? Often you're going to hear people, and this this might be how you wrote down that your own answer, something along the lines of. Um, I love God. I, I know I'm a Christian because I love God, or I, I, I know I'm right with God because I love him. Or they might say, I, I know I'm right with God because I love other people the way Jesus loved. And, and if, 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 we, if we believe this, like if we believe that God extends his favor to us uh, based on the way we love either him 
or we love others because I'm such a radical Christian and I, and I love everyone, or based on the, th- the, the, the fact that we, uh, we don't do these things or because we do these things or we pay our tithes, quote unquote, or we go to church or whatever. If that is, in any way, if you answer that question, I know I'm accepted by God because of something you do. Jesus poses a huge problem for you. And I want that to sit with you. You've got to understand that if this is your framework, if this is, this is the way you're thinking, God's, God's accepting you because you're loving so well. Jesus is a huge stumbling block for you. Do you not think that the Pharisees loved God? Or at least believed they loved God? Do you not think that the Pharisees believed that they loved their fellow man? And we're trying to show that love. If anybody um, is, is right, has, has favor with God based on um, who they are, it would be these, these Pharisees that we're about to read about uh, who uh, stumbled over Christ. They could not get around Jesus. He tore them up. He destroyed them. Um, the Pharisees were extremely devoted to, uh, um, to the God of the Bible. They actually believed um, that the reason the Messiah had not yet come to establish his kingdom on earth, which they were waiting for, I mean, that was the whole point of, of, of their faith. The reason the Messiah had yet to come to establish his, his reign, the reign of God on earth, was because there were sinners because there were people among them who were sinners. And so sinners then, in their context, were not simply um, uh, hated because they were unclean or because they were doing the wrong things. Uh, a sinner, in their context, in the context that Jesus came into, a sinner was somebody who literally was holding back the reign of God in their, in their life. Um, it, they, they believed, it was a common thought that if, if you could go, if, or if we as, a, as Israel could go 24 hours, one full day, if we could go 24 hours with no sin, then that would usher in the kingdom of God, the Messiah would then come, and God's reign would be established. And so sinners then, in this context, were people that were holding back the reign of God. Uh, they were holding back the Messiah. They were the reason the Messiah, in their minds, hadn't yet shown up. And so here are these Pharisees then who are extremely uh, dedicated to the scriptures. They're defenders of the scriptures. They're uh, apologists. They're, um, they're defenders of the traditions of Israel. Uh, they are uh, fed up with the sinners that are among them uh, because they believe that the sinners, again, they're holding back the Messiah from, from coming and God's reign from being established. And with that thought, I want to now go into Mark chapter 2, verse 13. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me there. Mark chapter 2, verse 13. If you need a Bible, there might be a couple left. You can raise your hand and uh, we can get you a Bible. Mark chapter, 13, or chapter 2, verse 13. He, Jesus, went out again beside the sea. And all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. 
he said to him, follow me, and he rose and followed him. Now, Levi, who's also known as Matthew, he's sitting at the tax booth. That would mean his, his job is what? Tax collector. Good. Now, if you know anything about tax collectors in first century uh, Israel, not pleasant people. Um, in the Mishnah, which was a, a document that came later, uh, which was a compilation of various traditions and, and writings and thoughts, the Mishnah describes uh, tax collectors as people who would, who would come in and they would, they would take payment uh, with or without your consent. And they would take a payment beyond uh, what was needed to line their own pockets. And so the, I, I think, when I, when I think of tax collector, uh, collector, I think of Robin Hood. Remember the Disney version of Robin Hood? Remember that mean old tax collector coming in? And he's like shaking boots and he's, I th actually I think he takes a uh, cast and he finds some change at the bottom of the cast. He takes everything, you know. Like that's probably not too far from, from what we have happening here in first century Israel. Like these tax collectors who come in and with or without consent, doesn't matter how poor you are, they will take what is, what is theirs. What they believe is theirs. Um, historically, it's known that, that the Roman Empire taxed uh, just extremely ridiculous amounts. Uh, some accounts say it was up, upwards of 50 to 60% of your income you would be taxed if you lived within the Roman Empire. And remember, Jerusalem or Israel is within the Roman Empire. And so this is a side note. Just try to bear with me here for a quick sec. Not only... Um, all right. Uh, the, when the kingdom of God, in their minds, when the kingdom of God would come, it would be this physical, literal kingdom... And it would trump and do away with the Roman Empire. Meaning, here's our enemy, the empire around us. Um, we're kind with them. We're getting along. But the fact is, is that we are still under them. And God's reign will put us on top of them. So, so the Roman Empire then is not only like charging these ridiculous taxes, but they're also the enemy. Okay? And so you would have to, if you were a Jew, you would have to pay the Roman tax as well as Israel, uh, your own tax um, for living in Israel. And this is what the Romans would do. This is sneaky, all right? The Romans would find Jews, sell out Jews, usually non-practicing, uh, to work for them and collect taxes from their own people. So they would come in, if I was the Roman Empire, I'd come into your community right here, I'd find one of you, um, and I would promise you some cash, you, you, you're going you're gonna to be wealthy, and you would essentially be a mole, you would sell out uh, your brothers and sisters, and now you are going to be collecting taxes from your own flesh and blood for the Roman Empire, all right? Are you getting a picture as to why tax collectors were sort of hated? I mean, not only were they greedy, not only did they line their pockets, they took more than they needed, needed to take, but they were working for the, for the enemy. They were sellouts. You had nothing to do with, I mean, talk about unclean. Later on in other, other accounts, um, it, it lumps uh, tax collectors with thieves and with the violent and with gamblers and murderers. So tax collectors and murderers, kind of synonymous in their minds. So Jesus here, do you see what he does in verse 13 and 14? He goes up to Levi. Levi's sitting in a tax booth, so he's a what? Tax collector. And he calls him, follow me. Now, it gets worse. 
In verse 15, we see that Jesus is, has not only called a tax collector to be one of his disciples, but he accepts a dinner invitation to go to his home and eat with other tax collectors and sinners. All right, verse 15, let me read it. Uh, as he reclined at the table at his, in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. I mean, imagine this. I want you to... Here is this Jesus. We, we've, we've seen this powerful introduction of Christ into the world over the first couple chapter, or the first chapter of Mark here. His baptism and, and the skies opening up and this, this great, powerful, just like proclamation. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. This is the Messiah here on earth. God in the flesh on earth. He, he has come to forgive sins with the, with the power to to bind our enemy, our, our eternal enemy, completely bind him and to, to take back what is his. This is the Jesus that has, has been healing. The crowds are like crowding around him, and just people following him all over the place. And he's choosing now to eat, to dine, and to, to, uh, to ask sinners, tax collectors, to follow him. And it says many of these people, many of these sinners are following him. The Pharisees aren't following him. The scribes aren't following him. The religious leaders aren't following him. Who are the ones following him? It's the sinners. It's the people who are on the outside. It's the people who are broken. They're following him. And so here Jesus is, is eating with them. And uh, uh, the scribes come up and say, say you know, why, do, why, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And then in verse 17, when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, before we get into Jesus' response right there, I want to briefly glance over a couple more stories. I'm telling you, like Mark has five stories total back to back that show this problem that Jesus brought to the religious leaders. Um, the next verse, in verse 18, he's questioned about fasting. Uh, John's disciples, it says, and the Pharisees were fasting. Um, and the people came and said, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And so here are these ceremonial laws that you should be following, that your disciples should be following, and your disciples aren't fasting. Why is that? So Jesus then explains to them, hold up, would you fast, would, would the guests of, of uh, the bridegroom fast at the wedding when, when the bridegroom is present? Now in, in our culture today, uh, if you went to a wedding um, and you were fasting and you didn't, chose not to eat the food, like, honestly, come on, like, Eat some food, you know, especially though here in this culture, weddings were huge. Seven days uh, were the ceremony, seven full days. And it was this big feast, big celebration to where even the rabbis would leave their Torah study to join their students, to join, join the crowds and to celebrate. So you did not fast during a wedding ceremony. And so Jesus is essentially saying, I am the bridegroom. I am here, and these are my groomsmen. These are my guests. Why would they sell, or why would they fast when they have me with them? And then he goes on. There is coming a time that I will leave, and there is coming a time that they will fast, but not now. All right, just hold hold right there. He goes on, and the next story is in verse twenty-three. He's confronted again 
uh, one Sabbath he was going through the grain fields, it says, verse 23, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? So here, um, again, we've got this huge problem where Jesus' disciples are not following these ceremonial, ceremonial uh, laws. It was legal to pick, pick, pick uh, uh, grain from your neighbor's uh, field if you were hungry. However, it was not legal to do that on the Sabbath. Because picking grain on the Sabbath was reaping harvest, and you're not allowed to reap your harvest on, on Sabbath. Why? Because you're not allowed to work on the Sabbath, right? So Jesus here is confronted again by the religious leaders. How can you, how can you get away with this? How can, you, how can you allow your disciples to break God's law in this way? Jesus responds, The Sabbath, uh, or man, was not made for the Sabbath the Sabbath, on the other hand, was made for man. And then he says, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. Which, by the way, uh, who created Sabbath? The idea of Sabbath? God, in Genesis chapter 2. God creates a Sabbath. Jesus is saying, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. I am the master of the Sabbath. I am the head of the Sabbath. I created the Sabbath. Remember, remember when God rested? Yeah, that was me. I started this whole thing. So what, what, what we're seeing here is Jesus doesn't bend um, to the law. Jesus doesn't conform to the law, but rather the law completely conforms to who Jesus is. The Sabbath completely conforms to who Jesus is. Because Jesus, by the way, is the Sabbath. Jesus is the rest that we need. And so this the Sabbath that we, that we practice, you know, we can even practice that today. The Sabbath points to something that's much bigger than itself. And it points to a better rest, better than one day can ever offer us. And it's pointing directly to Christ. I am the Lord of the Sabbath. The Sabbath conforms to me. I don't conform to the Sabbath. And then he goes on. We see another story here in the beginning of chapter 3 where Jesus again brings some more problems to the religious folk. Uh, verse 1, again, he entered the synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. So here's this guy, withered hand, and the Pharisees now are going to watch and, and see if this is an opportunity for them to begin to accuse, accuse Jesus. He does what we would expect him to do, and that is what? Hold out your hand, bam, his hand grows back, he heals the guy. And then look at, the, look at the response of the religious. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. This is the beginning of chapter 3, and we see, uh, we see the religious now plotting to destroy Christ. Why? Jesus is a huge stumbling block for the religious, for the self-righteous. Religious people have a problem with Jesus. Um, let, me, let me give you a couple thoughts here on religion and try to explain why religion has, why religious people have a problem with Jesus. Religion as we've defined it. 
religion is about status. Um, a religious person, person is going to be concerned uh, about their role within the church. They're going to be concerned about the, uh, who's in the spotlight, whether or not they're getting the attention that they need. Um, a religious person is going to be concerned about uh, who they line up with theologically. A relig religious person is going to be concerned about which camp they fall into. L religion is about status. It's about uh, finding my place. Here's who I am. This is my identity. These people. Um, uh, it's, it's, it's essentially about me. Uh, religion is about pride. It's about what you can do for God or what you can do for someone else. Uh, if, if, if this, this phrase, it's not about you. This is not about you. If, that, if you don't like that phrase, it's possible that you're a religious person. Because a religious person wants it to be about them. They want the world to revolve around them. They want everything to be, uh, it's, it's me. It's a very me-centered. It's not about you. Religion is about your niche. It's about finding your niche. The little things that you do that make you better uh, than, than everyone else. Uh, the um, doctrinal positions that you take or the, uh, the, the little bits that you know. You know. I've got this really awesome interpretation of this, this right here that nobody knows. And, and, and it's sort of like it elevates who you are. Um, you find your little, your little niche and uh, uh, subtly, without knowing it, you're, you're finding your identity um, in, in some place other than uh, who Christ is. You're finding your identity in, in you. Religion is about essentially being self-righteous. Um, religion wants to make the world a nice place. Now, here at the Garden, let me, let me say this really quick. We are uh, extremely concerned with making the world a nice place. I, I think that's a good thing. You know, we're concerned about justice. We're concerned about the poor. We're concerned about um, uh, making things right. Um, you know, at the same time, we could be concerned about those things, and it can end right there, and what we find is, is, uh, is religion. Because religion, in and of itself, is concerned about making the world a nicer place. Making people nicer. Um, C.S. Lewis, let me, let me say this quote, or read this quote from Lewis. Uh, he, Lewis says this on being nice. He says, niceness is an excellent thing. We must try by every medical, educational, economic, and political means in our power to produce a world where as many people as possible grow up nice, just as we should try to produce a world uh, where we have plenty to eat. But we must not suppose that, uh, that even if we succeed in making everyone nice, we should have saved their souls. A world of nice people, content in their own niceness, looking no further, turned away from God, would be just as desperately in need of salvation as a miserable world, and might even be more difficult to save. Where religion wants to make the world nice, Jesus came to make all things new. Jesus didn't just come to make nicer people, a nicer society. He came to make the world new. 
I came, he said, not to call the nice or the righteous. I came to call the sinners. Now, do you see, just with this description that we've, I'm trying to paint here, do you see how the gospel now of Jesus Christ is extremely scandalous? It tears down the institutions, all sorts of institutions that we build in our, in our minds, in our hearts, in our lives. It ruins the things that we come up with. It ruins our ideas. It ruins the things that we work for. Um, look at verse 21. I, I, wanna, I want you to see how Jesus explains this. In verse 21, he says, No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. So if we have a uh, tear on your shirt, and your shirt has already shrunk, right? And you take a piece of unshrunk cloth and you, you sew it on there, the problem is, is that cloth is going to shrink and it's going to make a worse tear than there was before. To make this a little more clear, let's go to the next one that Jesus says in verse 22. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins. And the wine is destroyed and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskin. Now Christ here is, is claiming that he himself is the new wine. And the Pharisees, essentially, are the old wineskins. So what he's saying is, is just as the Sabbath conforms to, to, to Jesus, so then the wineskins must conform to the new wine. Now here's the problem with that. Here's the problem with old wineskins. If you have old wineskins, from a biblical perspective, they burst. Historically, the reason behind that Craig Keener uh, talks about this. Wine could be kept in either jars or wineskins. Wineskins would stretch as, wines, as, as wine fermented. And so if you place wine then into, an, into a wineskin, as it ferments, the wineskin stretches. And, uh, and, and then you've got your wine, dump it out, whatever. If you place now new wine in there or unfermented wine, wine that's going to be fermented, as it ferments, it stretches or it wants to stretch and the wineskin can't stretch anymore. It's stretched to capacity. And so what happens to the, to the wineskin? It's ruined. It, 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 it breaks apart, busts open, wine goes everywhere, and it's, it's, ab, it's absolutely ruined. The new wine, I want you to understand this. What Jesus is saying is the new wine ruins um, the old wineskins. Jesus is essentially saying, I will not pour myself into old wineskins. I will not be poured into old, because I will not be wasted. And I, you are old wineskins. You can't handle me. And the new wine will not be poured into old wineskins. Jesus did not come to save those who have been stretched. He came to save the sinners. He did not come to save the righteous, but sinners. Now, I want, you, I want, I want this question to sit, sit with you just, just for a moment. 
um, would you consider yourself to be a generally, generally, generally a righteous person? Meaning, um, in and of yourself, there are some qualities about you. Um, there are some things about you, some things that you do, some things that you've done. In and of yourself, uh, you, sh you should be loved by God. In and of yourself, um, there's, there's enough there to make you right with God. Um, in and of yourself, God would be wrong to send you to hell. Now, if, if you answer yes to that question, you've got to understand that you are righteous and Jesus did not come to save the righteous. Jesus didn't come to save those who can save themselves, quote unquote, who believe they can save themselves. Jesus came to save those who have absolutely no hope. Jesus came to call not the righteous. He came to call the sinners. If anybody can say that they have some qualities about them, it would have been these, these people that Jesus is bumping into over and over and over again. These Pharisees. As a matter of fact, uh, turn with me to Philippians chapter 3. I want, I want you to see one former Pharisee and the way he described his own transformation. Um, here, Paul, who, who wrote Philippians, uh, begins to talk about the confidence that he, uh, that he could have in the flesh. He, Paul, Paul actually says, he says in verse 4, he says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. So Paul's saying, like, if you think that you have uh, the confidence in the flesh because you believe so well or because you do whatever so well, if you have confidence in the flesh, Paul's saying, I, I'm, I have more than that. I have more confidence than you do. Uh, circumcised on the eighth day, he says, from Israel, from the tribe of uh, Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. As to the law, he says he was a Pharisee, an old wineskin. But whatever gain I had, whatever gain I had, in verse 7, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. So here is this old wineskin talking, saying, man, like, I, I had a pretty decent thing going on. And I had a lot of stuff that was filling me. But all that, like, whatever gain I had, that was loss. And think about this. In, in the context of the wineskins, that wineskin that he once had was absolutely, like, pointless if it could not contain Christ. If it couldn't have Jesus, it was pointless. So he's like, all the, you know, this, this thing that I had and all of these qualifications that I had, I considered them all loss. They were nothing. And then look at verse, verse 8. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus 
as my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. What are you, what are you trusting in? Like, seriously, where do you put your trust? Is it in who you are? Is it in your belief system? Is it in what you do? Do you put your trust in your, uh, the check that you're going to get the 1st and the 15th of every month? Is your, is your trust in your family or your friends or your religious activity, giving an offering or going to church? Like, What is it, honestly, that you put your trust into? When you think about being before God, being able to stand before God, what is, it, what is it that you're putting your trust into? And what we have to recognize is that everything else will fail us. This old wineskin is, is, is worthless. I mean, there's nothing about it. There's nothing about it that has worth. Our money will fail us. Our job will fail us. Your friends will fail you. People will always fail you, by the way. People will always, everybody say it, people will always fail you. They do. Your life will one day fail you. So what is it that you're putting your trust into? This is, what, this is the transformation that Paul had. Look at verse 9. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. See, religion, when we're caught up in a religious kind of thinking, uh, we, we do good things, we obey God, and then therefore we're accepted because of those things. When we're, when we're living in that framework, the goal is to, is to be nicer. The goal is to have a nicer world around us or to have a nicer life. And then this idea of one day standing before the throne of God, it's a little scary to us. Because we're not really sure. And so we have some hopes. We, we have some hope to some degree. Um, but the reality is, is we're, we, it's, it's, it's a scary thought. Whereas the gospel on the other hand, and this is what Paul found, is like everything about any good that I can do, it's completely rubbish. It's completely worthless. There's nothing there that I can hang on to. It is all it is all going to fail me. But I have found something that I can hang on to. See, the gospel is about this old wineskin being made new. We are gifted a new wineskin. It's, it's not about being nice. It's about becoming new. And then with this, we, we, we then, uh, we then are, are, are able to approach the throne of God not with fear, but with confidence. There, the, the gospel, um, there might be some of you here today who are listening to this and you're thinking like, this is just foolishness. Like this, you know, I'm hearing it. I don't see how it's going to do any, like it doesn't make sense. Like, and then there's others of you who are like, it's clicking. Like, wow, the gospel is actually everything. 
the fact that I am, uh, can do no, nothing in and of myself, and the fact that Christ has done something for me that I could never do, that is transformational. And you are like this new wineskin ready to be filled with Christ. And you, you can um, uh, completely like resonate and agree with this, this old hymn from 1738 that is still just as powerful today. And can it be that I should gain an interest in my Savior's blood? Wow. That I would have some of that. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening way. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, I went forth, and I followed thee. No condemnation. Now I dread Jesus in all, and all in him is mine. Alive in him. My living head and clothed in righteousness divine, bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. See, here's the crazy thing about the gospel, and this is what gets me every time I can, I really like, like honestly, when, when, when I'm feeling, I don't know, disconnected, when I'm feeling alone, when I'm wondering about, uh, uh, I don't know, about God, about me, whatever, I focus on the cross on the fact that, man, the stuff that I'm feeling guilty about or the stuff that I've done or the, these, these things that, that are problematic in my life, that's the stuff that, that caused Christ pain. And it's like this, wow, I can take my junk. Like some of you guys walked in here today with a lot of junk. Like you got stuff that's like weighing you down. Stuff that you, you feel guilty about. You feel really bad about. And the gospel says we can take that junk and we can put it onto Christ. Wow. Like, yeah. Is, I mean, is that not an amazing gift? That we should have an interest in the blood of Christ and that we can place our junk onto Christ and that we can now boldly approach the throne and claim that crown with confidence. See, the gospel is much, it's much better than religion. And, and with this, with this, as, as we understand it and as, as this new wine fills, fills us. We then, like Jesus, also eat with sinners. We then surround ourselves, not with the righteous, quote-unquote, but with the broken. Because it's transformational. Because it's good. Because it's right. The, the garden, this is not a church for nice people. All right? I'm not saying that you guys aren't nice. But this isn't a church for nice people. This isn't a church for people that have it all together. It's not a church for righteous people. This is a place where tax collectors are to come. Where prostitutes are to come. Where those that are hurting are to come. Where those that 
feel really bad about what happened the night before are to wake up and come. A community that they are to be part of. And hear the gospel. And take the junk that we have and trust in Christ. Not, not based on the things that we do, but what Christ has done for us. And, and when we believe the gospel, the chains, as it says in the song, the chains fall off. And we get up and we follow Christ. That's all I got. All right, let's, let's pray. Uh, John's going to come and lead us in some music. Um, if, if you are, uh, uh, the, the, the gospel makes sense to you right now. Um, I mean, for some of you, you may have been a Christian for years. And, and still, like, like, there's a reason we preach the gospel every Sunday here. And it's because half the time we, we forget the gospel. Or we, we don't know the gospel. We think we do. But we don't really get it. Like, even as I was studying this morning, I guess I'm not done. Even as I was studying this morning, I was studying this morning, I was reading it through, and it like hit me all over again. I'm like, oh my goodness, like God is that good to me, to where he doesn't hold my crap against me. That's good. That is, that's, that's transformational. That changes everything about us, the way we think, the way we act, the way we talk to each other. Let's stand together. I am done. God, we do ask that you remind us this morning this truth that, that the Pharisees were bumping into, the fact that, uh, that Christ has not come to call the righteous, those who have it all together. He has come to call those of us who don't. He's come to call those of us who, who feel insignificant, who don't feel good enough, who don't feel we'll ever... Uh, uh, be able to match up to whatever level of holiness it is that, 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 uh, that you want for us. And we recognize that the good news about the gospel is that Christ did that on our behalf. And we give our junk over. We let go of that. And we claim his righteousness as our own. And we can now boldly come before you knowing that we are accepted by you completely. We thank you for that. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm-hmm.